Welcome to Santa Fe College. My name is Vilma Fuentes, and this is our podcast on developing global citizens. Today, I am joined by Dr. Sarah Servone, a professor of humanities at Santa Fe College. And um, so, Sarah, welcome Thank to our show. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Sarah, how long have you been teaching at Santa Fe? Since 2011. And uh, what what brought you here? And, and what was the first course that you started teaching for us? Uh, I had just received my PhD. I was looking for jobs. And wouldn't you know it, Santa Fe had a job posting for African humanities. And I sent Bill Little an email and there I was <laughs> next semester. And there you were. Now, yeah. you have had a passion for Africa for quite a long time. Uh, tell me, how did you start on that journey? What got you interested in Africa? Have you ever been to Africa? Yes. Yeah, so uh, if you would have asked me maybe when I was in high school or even as an undergraduate, if I would have ended up in African studies, I wouldn't have thought that that was in my cards. But uh, as luck would have it, I just started doing some research looking at areas when I was in grad school. I was initially doing my research in Alaska, um, starting to think maybe, you know, it was too crowded there um, in, in terms of anthropologists. So I looked at the globe and looked at Africa, uh, emailed some anthropologists who were working in Morocco, because that struck my interest. And I was surprised when the anthropologist said, please come to Morocco. We need more anthropologists here, which is very unusual. Um, and so I started doing some more research and was able to find some funding. And the Center for African Studies in University of Florida was just so supportive that um, I was able to, to go. And that's North Africa became my, my specialty of, of my area of interest. And uh, Morocco became the area of interest. And so that's where I spent the most time in. So did you arrive like an English-speaking girl from North Central Florida? Or did you study languages before going? What was the path to getting there? Uh, well, the first thing I did was to study Arabic. I was able to get a foreign language area studies uh, mm -hmm. fellowship, and um, I studied Arabic, but it was it's Fusha. So when I arrived in Morocco, it was a little shocking that the Arabic that I studied was nothing like the Arabic that was spoken <laughs> in Morocco. Uh, and so the, the Deraja there was very, very different. The local dialect was very different. Um, I did have some uh, language training in French, from high school and then also undergraduate and then um, in grad school as well. So that be that became useful. Um, and then I, you know, I'd wanted to work in the rural areas and the indigenous language in the area that I wanted to work at was Tashlhate. Uh, and so then I was tasked with also picking that up. Fortunately for me, <laughs> hospitality and offering a welcome environment is a part of Moroccan culture. And so just by simply trying, uh, people were extremely patient. Um, always very helpful and so that it, it wasn't difficult uh, for me to get around because people were, were very accommodating. So how many languages do you currently speak? I'm terrible at about four. Uh, I, can, I can get by in survival mode but having you know use it or lose it and so um, I'm working with Alliance Francaise with mm -hmm. uh, Elizabeth Swiffer Mm -hmm. uh, with the French, and then um, I just found an Arabic uh, tutor that's going to help me get my Arabic back, so get yeah. my Arabic groove going. Well, actually, how long were you in Morocco, and how many times? Was it once that you traveled there? 
No, I did a study abroad three times, uh, 2005, 2006, and 2007. And then I had the Fulbright for almost a year and a half that was 2007 and 2008. Excellent. Uh, how did your impression of Morocco change through those four visits? I think like anything, you know, it was the best of times and sometimes it was the worst of times. <laughs> and and uh -huh. that's that's when you really know that you've developed, you're, you're kind of like people, you know, mm -hmm. that you really know uh, a place when you realize you, there's not everything you love about it. There are some things you hate, but you still love them. And that's, you know, that was the aspects in terms of Morocco is that once you're there, once the honeymoon period um, wears off and you are a stranger in a in a land, um, it starts to to wear on you, and um, and so that's you know there were some trying times. Uh, you know, keep in mind it, it was also my first time ever being out of the country when I went, landed wow. in Morocco. So to go from uh, you know Florida to to uh, Fez, the old Medina in Fez, as a study mm -hmm. you know stay at home or a homestay experience. Mm -hmm. um, I think I I bit off a lot. And so it was trying, but it, I would have to say it was probably the most important experience of my life. I also had the opportunity to bring my daughter with me. And I think that that was probably one of the, in, in addition to love, I think showing her the world is probably one of the greatest gifts that I could give to her as a parent. So um, best of times, worst of times. So tell me some of the best of times. Anything funny, any like memorable moments that stand out to you about your time or your different trips to Morocco? Um, so many, you know, I would just have to say being able to, to connect with people. Uh, for me, you know, when I arrived, I was a, you know, I was a single mom, grad student, um, American, and just kind of showing up with a backpack. But then once getting into the circuit and meeting other people from Morocco or also other uh, tourists that are, had come in and um, at the time, I'm not sure if it's still the same, but in, you could stay on top of a, it's a called a gîte, mm -hmm. uh, like a like a hostel. Mm -hmm. um, they'd let you stay on the roof, and <laughs> um, it was less expensive. And you just would lay out your your sleeping bag and mm -hmm. have your stuff there, and and so it was just this modgepodge of people as well as Moroccans that were maybe guiding. Mm -hmm. And so there would be nights of of instruments and people talking, and you just really felt like. At that time, you know, all national alliances were gone, and we were just people on top of this jeet, uh, having music, singing songs, talking, sharing food, sharing stories, and uh, it those were kind of the best that connecting. Mm -hmm. um, and then there were also some trying times as well. Um, so when I think about Morocco, I think about. Uh, I envision very cosmopolitan cities that for um, decades or hundreds of years has had strong connections with Europe, certainly with the Iberian Peninsula or with France. Um, is is that your impression of Morocco? Does, is my stereotype correct or am I completely mistaken? Morocco has many layers. And okay. so you can go into areas like Casablanca or 
you know, they call it the New Medina and, and Fez Rabat and the urban centers. And you're going to find places that look like Miami Beach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's Club Med there. And if I wanted a Coke with ice in it, I would go into those areas and I would get a Coke <laughs> with ice. Right. And that was that was a luxury. But, you know, at the same time, even like in Mar- Marrakesh, you have these real posh areas. But then if you go into Djem al and there's, you know, you'd hear the snake charmers there and they're, they're uh flutes and instruments that they play and and so the you know the spice markets and so it's definitely something that has you know a medieval flavor also because mm-hmm. you're looking at some of the you know the ancient trade routes mm-hmm. when Marrakesh was on that Fez was on that um, Tangier also being a, a, a port that um, you know had at that intersection of of Europe the Middle East North Africa and the Americas uh, so it has a lot of that and then when you get into the the rural areas You'll still see kind of these sand or mud and stone structures, but then they've got satellites. Mm-hmm. For, so people, you know, or parabolas is what they call them. Um, so people have their satellite TV inside. Mm-hmm. And so it's definitely, you know, when you can see this many layers of different times and global flows and local circumstances, and it's fascinating. So was there ever a time, you know, anthropologists are usually better prepared to enter other cultures than, say, regular traveling Americans, right? Because you've been sensitized, or so one would hope, uh, to what you might expect. But um, during your time there, and especially, say, during the Fulbright program, was there was there ever a moment when you thought, wow, that's not what I expected of... Moroccans and you know whatever I did have a stereotype or a misconception that was um, you know misplaced yes um, that would have had so my research in anthropology uh, initially started off with looking at finding income generating activities for women in the tourism economy uh, because I had prior to arriving read that the king was trying to promote tourism as a way to bring, you know, as poverty alleviation as a way to bring income into these remote areas. Um, I had read in the literature that women were being left out because of gender inequality. So with me being an independent American woman, (laughs) my mission was to go to Morocco and try to find ways for women to earn income. Mm -hmm. Um, I arrived and it wasn't, you know, after I had become familiar with people, I realized that there was one huge question that I didn't ask first. Mm -hmm. And that was, did women want to earn income in the in the tourism economy? And when uh, I started doing interviews and talking to people and talking about this is what I want to do, the men were all for it. They were like, absolutely. <laughs> get it to work. Get my wife out there and get some money. The women were like, whoa, 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 Sarah. Like, why <laughs> would we want to work? We just ask our husbands for it. I realized that they were looking at me like, this poor woman has to you know, work. Has to work. <laughs> and one woman even asked me, like, what's wrong with you? Why doesn't any man want you? And I was like, well, I, I don't want to be married. And, and she looked at me like, what? Sure. You know, who doesn't? And, and I started realizing it that, you know, who was I to go into this village and decide what these women needed? Who, who better know to know what they need than they know what they needed? And so that's when I had to completely redesign my entire research plan, go back home, 
And that's what the importance of visiting, talking, having a participatory involvement in research is to go back home. Like, how can I reformulate this so that it, it better suits the, the wants, desires, and needs of the community? And so that was the aha moment. And I think a lot of anthropologists have that. You know, a number of credit hours in school doesn't make you an expert, and that's what I realized. Quite honestly, it had me self-reflect self on, you know, looking at why do I measure my, my value and my empowerment as a woman based on my career. Mm -hmm. um, and there, and, you know, that I also had, you know, kind of a very narrow focus on what it means to be empowered or to be free or to be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the, also the benefits I think about traveling and engaging outside of your own culture is that you learn a lot about yourself and, and the way you see the world. And so that was one of the ways that I've grew. So tell me a funny experience that happened to you in Morocco. Uh, okay. It, awkward, funny. <laughs> sure. Was, so at the university, when I was attending the University of Florida and it's a HIV awareness, whatever. And you know, there, there's these groups and they're all just passing out condoms to people randomly. Mm -hmm. And so you walk by and the polite thing to do is like, okay, you grab it. And you know, I said, grab one, I shove it in in the side pocket in my backpack and I'll continue on to class, forget about it. Well, fast forward months later, I'm in a village <laughs> doing interviews with men, reach fumbling around in my backpack and what <laughs> falls out but these condoms I picked up. And so there's this moment of, <gasps> what are those? And right. I remember, oh yeah, you know, because they're like the multicolored cheap kind, you know, that they pass <laughs> out. And but then I realize there's like these three men like looking at me, and I have to explain how these, why am I carrying these in Morocco, this single woman? And so I relay the story about how they hand them out for free at my school, and I can see just the disbelief in their eyes. Like, yeah, Sarah, right. They hand, they just hand condoms out at the university. It just, it was a ridiculous story. Right. So particularly in a place like Morocco, they would never imagine doing that. Sure. So, um, so I sheepishly put them back, tried to carry on the interview as if it didn't happen. Um, but the thing was, is that, you know, even after, you know, that initial thing, you know, the men just went back to being respectful and nice and... Mm -hmm. And it, you know, and I thought, well, they're never just going to talk to me again. You know, I'm judged, uh, you know, because condoms in, in a place like that are associated. Only prostitutes carry condoms around. Um, and uh, they, I, I never, they never shunned me or, or I didn't hear about anything that they had been saying about me behind my back. I think they just like crazy American women. And <laughs> that carry condoms in their backpack. It's fine. Carry condoms around <laughs> wherever they go. You know, the stereotypes real, apparently. Right. <laughs> so awesome. So yeah. Okay. So that was that was my awkward story. Cool. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> so you primarily serve students that are either living in North Central Florida, some of them maybe slightly uh, outside of our college's service district, but usually mostly Floridians. H how do you connect? Africa to them and their lives? Um, well, I think a lot of students do care. Um, Africa also has had such a strong force, cultural force in American culture. Uh, I think a lot of it is, is hidden. We don't recognize it as being African culture in our American culture because it's been accepted as American culture. Um, you know, I think their students are thirsty for information about Africa. When I start the African Humanities class, I have students 
you know, raise their hand and say, you know, I asked them how many of you have studied world history, and you know, most of the hands, almost all hands go up. Um, in that world history class, uh, how many of you learned about African civilizations? And in most cases, almost all hands go down. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a part of history that's been left out, and, and deliberately. Yeah. And so there's this, this missing gap, and, and I think when you start from there, and I start African humanities with human origins, and um, and then moving through into development of civilizations, and it's it's new information that uh, students are eager to acquire, and I, I think especially now with the current circumstances and conditions, and looking at race relations, you know, why, how did this happen? Where did this come from? You know, we have to look at, you know, what happened in Africa during enslavement and colonization because that's directly related to what's happening here in the Americas. So I think it's very timely to bring that in. Um, and that's what makes re Africa relevant to every student. Um, I think, you know, there, there's this idea that, you know, only someone who's African-American is in interested in Africa or African history. Um, and, you know, that's not what has taken place in Africa and what continues to happen in Africa today has a global impacts. And so it's of interest to all of us. So um, I know that one of the things that you've been doing is trying to um, have students be more mindful of how the food that they eat is connected to Africa and African culture. Um, tell me about that. Tell me about your project, Africa in your garden and on your table. That started with a project that I had outside of Santa Fe when I was here as an adjunct. Um, and one of the things was looking at local food and how to promote local food consumption. Um, I came across some research that had uh, shown that when people connect to a food, they're more likely to consume it. And um, so through that, I started looking at African foods. And because in Florida, you know, with our climate, we have, you know, a lot of our agriculture is, is rooted in, in African crops. Um, and so the African humanities class uh, has, we ended with Africa, the, the African diaspora in Africa in Florida, mm -hmm. and one that relates to food. And so the, the project began with the students would create a dish. And um, at that time, would bring it into class. Now with COVID, they take a picture of it. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 that particular lesson was just the lesson that really lit students up because here they had made this meal. In many cases, they had solicited assistance from a family member or got together with friends. They were very proud of it and also very surprised at how great it tasted. And so um, it was through that then I thought, well, why don't we go ahead and, and make this you know, an official part of the class and developed this project where students were researching the history of the food crop and the um, nutritional aspects of it, some recipes about it. And then um, last year, some students developed the um, Africa in Your Garden and Africa on Your Table uh, brochure as a way to raise awareness. So uh, I'm not following you. Give me some examples. What food is eaten in Florida? What crops do we consume that are have an African origin? Okay, it was almost difficult to find which ones don't have an African okay. origin. If you think of Southern food, um, anywhere from um, okra mm -hmm. has African, watermelon mm -hmm. does, aloe, 
So sweet yams, not sweet potatoes, but sweet yams. Um, Then we also have uh, pigeon peas, which Mm -hmm. are not widely consumed, or people are consuming them and they're not aware that they are, Mm -hmm. but they're also um, very uh, highly nutritious. There's a lot of um, also uh, animals. If you look at like the Watusi cow, there's a, in Keystone Heights, there's a big Watusi farm. Um, Guinea fowl, which is a very dark meat that a lot of farms have them. They're not in our... Um, agricultural commodity system, but most farms on in Florida will have some guinea fowl there for their purposes. Um, ostrich is, was coming into the market. It didn't really gain a foothold, but um, that is one. There's a lot of pigs that are are in our food system that also have come from Africa. Rice, if you look, that's cultivated in South Carolina. Um, and that, that's one of the important things to also keep in mind is that a lot of our farming techniques and our cooking food preparation techniques um, have come from Africa as well. You've been working also with, with the Matheson Museum, correct? Yeah, so it started off, where the idea was to look at Florida folk foods, um, and that's looking at multicultural pathways to Florida folk life and our, our folk food system. So it isn't just Africa, but also um, Dr. Marcelo Morello is working in Latin American uh, humanities. Um, we also had Eva Casanas and Asian humanities had also done Asian foods in Florida um, as well. And then after looking um, at foods, it was also, well, why don't we branch out to other other aspects of other Africanisms in Florida. And so in terms of music, like the Bo Diddley beat is actually a Yoruban beat. Hmm. Um, and that that Bo Diddley beat is now worldwide in a wide variety of songs, um, literature and storytelling. And so it's branched off in multiple directions. Excellent. So uh, how has this COVID pandemic impacted you? And the, your ability to teach students about Africa and the world has it made it harder? Has it made it easier? Uh, you know, it's. I think it's one of the anything that challenges you to to innovate. Uh, in the end, is is a good thing because there's a lot of new things that I've found online and or new strategies and techniques to to enhance uh, uh, the learning experience remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it has been a challenge. But I think right now we're all hoping that this will be a temporary challenge. It does create a disconnect um, to have, you know, that the presence uh, to be able to get together with students or maybe to to meet somewhere like the African collection at the Harn. Um, so there has those where experiential aspects that have have taken a hit. Um, but then, you know, the flip side is that you know you find a great tour of the African collect or museum in Washington D.C. and and so hey we can we can go there virtually together and so it, it does expand um, new opportunities that we'll hopefully be able to integrate when things return to normal. So what's next for you and uh, introducing Africa to your students? What are your what plans do you have in your portfolio? Study abroad. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know I mean you don't have to to go abroad in order to learn about different peoples and cultures. But I, I do think with that being the most rewarding experience for me, um, it's something that I feel passionate about promoting and making possible for students here at Santa Fe to, to have that 
just that experience of being able to go abroad, to engage, to, you know, to connect um, with people that otherwise maybe wouldn't have that chance. Um, we do want to expand the Florida Folklife Project here at Santa Fe and um, hopefully be able to get back together with the Matheson Museum and be able to um, de further develop that. And I think, um, aren't you going to be co-teaching with a Fulbright Scholar soon? Yes, and then hosting Dr. Mona Ashour, which I'm very excited about because uh, hopefully she'll be tolerant of my terrible Arabic. <laughs> but um, I think she has so much to offer. And actually, when she did her uh, talk recently, a lot of my students had attended that, and they just absolutely loved um, what she was speaking about it. And I really think they also enjoyed being able to hear from someone who's in Africa, in Cairo, um, talking about Africa. Mm -hmm. And so I think that she'll be able to bring a lot into our classroom as well. And for our listeners, Dr. Mona Ashur has been selected as Santa Fe's Fulbright Scholar in Residence. Uh, uh, she is a professor at Ein Shump University in Cairo, Egypt. She was supposed to arrive here August of uh, 2020. Didn't quite happen because of the pandemic. So for now, it's been her arrival has been postponed until August of 2021. So we're very much looking forward to having her here and continue the learning. Um, well, Sarah, thank you so much for all you do for our students uh, to expose them to the world. Thank you. Thanks for having me.